people are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives probably, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles, a lot of theories, and I try not to read them. And whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, that Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind, a different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. Welcome to Strange Bedfellows, an ACOM series about Yoko Ono and Paul McCartney's struggle over legacy after John Lennon's death. This series will analyze McCartney and Ono's evolving relationship starting in December 9th, 1980 and continuing all the way into 2023. We'll take a look at how each party portrays their respective partnership, both personal and creative, with John Lennon. We'll also track what they've said about each other over the past four decades, how they sometimes act like reluctant but respectful in-laws, and sometimes more like heavyweight opponents in a battle for wealth and prestige. It's been 55 long years of ups and downs, twists and turns for Yoko and Paul. How have they adapted over that time? Where are they now? And how do they really feel about each other? Sit back get comfy, and prepare for the colorful story of two strange bedfellows, antagonists from the start, who have nevertheless strived for peaceful coexistence, but who are also both headstrong artists who want things their way. You can say that again. <laughs> yeah, they may, they may have strived for peace, but they want peace on their own terms. They do, and they're not afraid to get messy. Mm -mm. But that's okay, because we're going to embrace the messiness. Yeah. Here at ACOM, we embrace I was messiness. About to say. <laughs> <laughs> we're drawn to it like flies to honey. <laughs> Lord, what a mess I'm in. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Both Paul and Yoko have, in many ways, been publicly defined by their respective relationships with John Lennon. Both of those relationships have been subject to scrutiny, criticism, mythology, and romanticism. And they've been pitted against each other, both by the public and by the parties themselves. In some respects, Yoko and Paul have both been eclipsed by John Lennon, especially after his death and subsequent canonization. And as his two life partners, they therefore occasionally wrestle over their share of his story. Yeah, it's very much a negotiation of 
how much can I assert my right of possession? How can I get maximum of what I want without there being too much blowback on myself? Yeah, they want to they wanna establish a balance of power. Yeah. Because they know that neither of them can really win an all-out war. Mm-hmm. And I don't think either of them is interested in <laughs> yeah, can, like fighting starting that war. war. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So they're both probably willing to like allow the other more control yes. over the narrative than they think they deserve. Yeah, I agree. Like it is something that they realize they have to share. I do feel like the best analogy is always going to be a family where there's in-laws who have to get along who are basically like trying to manage an estate. Except there's a lot of money at stake. There's a lot of money at stake and there is still Reputation. you know, unresolved feelings between Paul and Yoko and competing narratives. You know, like when a normal person dies and they leave a big estate, people are fighting over money. Here it's yeah. like they're fighting over money, but also credit narratives talking points uh-huh. and how people are portrayed and like how Legacy. history is written yep. it's all really important stuff and it's all very emotional and it's extremely personal to paul mccartney because the, he and john share in a massive body of work which is responsible for the bulk of john's wealth and fame mm-hmm. so paul is extremely over invested in that part of john's life not by his choice but just by reality a lot of john's work and the basis for his wealth and fame was built with paul that's just a fact however john and paul did get divorced and he married somebody else yoko did inherit control of his estate and his money and the ability to tell his story and that is just true when you divorce someone right you lose that right you don't get to tell their story anymore mm-hmm. however paul does get to tell his own story so that's why it's extremely complicated there's no way that paul will or ever should or would or or should be expected to cede control of his own narrative to exactly. yoko i mean that's mm-hmm. just ridiculous there's just a natural, unavoidable tension between all those things um, that they means they have to constantly be negotiating. In this series, we're focusing on Yoko and Paul after John's death, how Yoko officially becomes John's proxy, and how Paul and Yoko, who had previously been able to keep each other at a distance to a certain extent, morph into the new Lennon-McCartney 2.0. As such, we won't be focusing on the 60s and 70s and their relationship prior to John's death. We've covered it a great deal already, and it's been analyzed and discussed in depth elsewhere. Suffice it to say, there were ups and downs. Yeah, it was a complicated relationship. It certainly was. Uh, We won't really get into that other than to say, once John is murdered, to a certain extent, I think that's water under the bridge. Mm. not meaning that it's all forgiven and forgotten but that meaning well it takes a back seat right their old squabbles take a back seat to their new squabbles <laughs> yeah for the most part although we will see the infamous origin story pop up periodically 
the struggle for John's actual personal love and attention in real time is now over. It's about the legacy and the narrative now. But by the yeah. same token, now Paul doesn't have to worry about his relationship with John being affected by how he speaks about or treats Yoko. Yeah, that's true too. And I think one challenge for Paul is that post John's murder, the public sentiment definitely tilts towards Yoko, <laughs> both in general and in terms of narrative building. Mm -hmm. In the immediate aftermath, Paul is not really in much of a position to challenge her. Right, because literal widow trumps ex-partner. Yeah, so it takes him a while to publicly push back on her at all. Yeah. Before then, he's just trying to keep himself from sinking. So I pulled this quote from Philip Norman's Paul biography mm -hmm. because I think it's a pretty good encapsulation of the situation. And actually, we will pull from this book several times during this episode because I find it a good source for material on the 80s. Obviously, Philip Norman's shout was a major contributor to the old narrative and did a lot of damage to Beatles history in a lot of ways. That's already been covered in great detail. Listeners may choose not to forgive Norman for this, and that's fine. That's a valid choice. Sure. All that aside, I have found his later McCartney and London bios a, a good source of info. And maybe more to the point, Norman was there interviewing Yoko in 1981. Yes, in the immediate aftermath. So this is what he writes in the Paul McCartney biography after John's death. It was assumed the other ex-Beatles must have put any old resentments aside and be rallying around her in their common grief. However, when asked a few weeks later how supportive they had been, she pointedly answered, no comment, which was unfair on both Ringo in the short term and Paul in the longer one. Prior to John's death, Paul had been on not at all bad terms with Yoko, but in the aftermath, he made a conscious effort to get to know her better. He discovered a woman even more adept than himself at donning a protective shell, who initially bristled at his overtures, saying she didn't want to be treated like widow of the year. At first, I felt rebuffed and thought, oh, well, great, sawed you then, he would recall. But then I thought, she's had the tragedy of a lifetime here, and I'm being crazy and insensitive to say, well, if you're not going to be nice to me, then I'm not going to be nice to you. From here on, Paul would have to live with a perception of his and John's character that seemed unalterable. Lennon, the avant-garde, the experimenter, the risk-taker. McCartney, the tuneful, the sentimental, the safe. He'd learned to be philosophical about all the times he'd taken a backseat to John or seen John given credit for something he'd initiated, like getting into musique concrète or reading Tibetan religious books or growing a mustache. I, I, I just, I love those examples. Important things down to petty things. Yeah, down to facial hair. Much of this John-centered Beatles narrative is due to the publication of Shout. In fact, Aaron Torkelson Weber dubbed the 1980s and 1990s the Shout Era, and it was ushered in by the deification of John that occurs throughout the world immediately after his death. 
Yeah, which is not John's fault, certainly, or Yoko's fault. But naturally, it puts Paul on the defensive, whether he wants to be on the defensive or not. Yep. Kind of has no choice. Yeah, because it reignites the John versus Paul debate that was yeah. so intense right after the breakup or like in the early 70s, which was still going on by 1979, but had certainly cooled. Uh, oh, yeah from the state it was in in the early 70s but i think in the early 80s it's like just as intense but but worse oh definitely we're going to trace to the best of our ability how the relationship between yoko and paul develops and evolves beginning with the aftermath of john's murder good evening millions of people mourned the tragic death of john lennon today the young and the middle-aged shared a sense of grief over the inexplicable Paul tells Music Express magazine in May of 1982 I talked with Yoko the day after John was killed and the first thing she said was John was really fond of you you know which pretty sure that really fond of you are Paul's words and not Yoko's words agree Paul will tell this story several times over the next few years also in 1982, he says Yoko told him that John still loved me after all. And in 1984 to the CBC, it's again, he loved me. So I think we can safely assume that she said loved. So yeah, if she actually said that to him on their first phone call, that's pretty amazing. I would not have the presence of mind to say that to Paul over the phone while I was still in shock that's quite a thing well it is i'm i'm really glad that she told him that and i know that paul is really glad that she told him that i wonder if she called him intending to tell him that or if his reaction sort of brought it out of her you might not plan to say something really kind and gentle to someone until they you demonstrate hear, uh, that they yeah. they are really need you to do that. Yeah. Or maybe she had, you know, a pure altruistic urge that like, this is what Paul McCartney needs to hear right now. I'm going to call him and tell him. Yeah, I doubt she was thinking it through. I mean, it's news I agree. to her. You know, when, when somebody dies, you just make a phone call. You just say whatever comes out. I mean. Right, right, right. Although didn't paul hear the news from his like from one of his staff yeah i think he heard it first before yoko got him okay. on the phone but yeah this was this is just the first time they, they actually yeah and i could see it being a, a thing like you know she doesn't get paul she gets one of his people guy might have been like well well it'll take us an hour to like to oh, get man. him and she's like well i can't wait an hour you, you just tell him then i'll call him tomorrow but it is noteworthy that she called him immediately yeah him mimi and julian he's on the emergency contact list basically for sure mm -hmm. yeah the next, the next of kins so that to me does show that she does have for respect for him and that she knows how important he is there's no yeah there, there's no confusion about that no <laughs> no oh my god any confusion about Paul's importance in John's life 
is purely on the part of fans, writers, commentators, not on the part of anyone who actually knew them. That is really nice. Because she made it a priority to call him. I mean, I think that's the right thing to do. Yeah, but it's not a given that she would, would actually do it. Do it. Yeah. So, in early 1981, uh, presumably sometime in the spring, after Paul returns from Montserrat, where he's recording, and prior to May of 1981, he goes to visit Yoko at the Dakota. Now, Paul talked about this visit several times in the 80s. Here's what he said in 1984, which as far as we can tell is the first time that he publicly detailed this exchange. John was maturing towards the end, becoming a very sort of suave, serious person, which he very much liked to see himself as. After his death, Linda and I went round to Yoko's and we all cried so hard, you know, we had to laugh. She wanted to get us something to eat and she mentioned caviar. We all said, let's do it. Her houseman brought it in, mumbling, and he backed out, and there was the caviar tin with just a little bit in the bottom. Her servants had eaten it all. So I said, ask for some wine. Sure enough, it arrives, and there's like a quarter left in the bottle. They've had all the wine, too. We were all just hysterical, and the relief was indescribable. Oh, it's a nice story. That is a, a very, very Paul to wrap that story in a, in a cute anecdote about like them laughing about caviar. But he also said that they were all crying so hard mm-hmm. that they had to laugh. So uh, that, I mean, that tells me it was a, well, it do, he doesn't really talk about, yeah, I saw Yoko after John's death and fucking blubbered on her couch. You know what I mean? Right. He's like the least dramatic person in the world when he tells stories. It's like thank you. He yes. just he, he takes all the drama out. Yes, he downplays everything. Yeah, so that sounds like it was very emotional. Again, in 1984, to Playboy, he was asked, "Once you began to understand Yoko, Paul, did you two talk about John?" Paul replies, "Yes, we did. In fact." After he died, the thing that helped me the most, really, was talking to Yoko about it. She volunteered the information that he had, dot, 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 really liked me. Is that the interviewer putting in the dot, 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 so as to indicate a long pause? Yes. Oh, oh. can I say it? Can I say, can I say the L word? Oh, can I say it? Should I say it? He can he cannot and he ultimately decides, nope, not today, not today. She said that once or twice they had sat down to listen to my records, and he had said, There you are. Whatever that means. Well, there you are, Yoko. There you go. What more can I say? What if it wasn't a well there you go then? What if it was there you are? My beloved singing to me. Yeah, sometimes I wondered if that's what he's saying too. Like if he's talking to Paul. 
Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. I know. Like, yeah, it's concerning. But that's something that would stick with me if I saw my husband do that. I'd be like, oh, dear God, he's talking to the record player now. Oh, God. Yeah. But knowing what we now know about how obsessed John was with Paul, especially in those final years, mm-hmm. and how he believed that they had a psychic connection, is not even remotely far-fetched, is it? No, actually. No, it's not. I mean, maybe in John's mind, he was angry at present-day Paul, and he was searching mm-hmm. for the Paul that he still loved somewhere. And he found him in whatever record he was listening to. In in music, yeah. Mm -hmm. That clip of him in 1980, that interview where he says, Oh, Paul, my dear one. Paul, my dear one. Like, just offhanded and quiet. Like, that lives rent-free in my brain, so I could easily see this. Yeah. There there you are, dear one. I I do think it's quality of of Yoko to, to tell Paul that. Yeah, I agree. And also, if I was her, I'd probably have to exercise that from my life, too. I think I'd probably have to be like, here, you hold this, Paul, because I don't want to hold it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And also, if I was Paul, that would make me cry. I mean, any way you interpret it, it's pretty earth shattering. For sure. Okay. In 1987, he says... Actually, it was really nice. After John died, Yoko was quite kind in telling me that he did really love me. In April of 89, he said, I also know from Yoko that John had sat down in other moments and cried when listening to that stuff. In May of 1989, he says, Yoko told me once that he'd sat her down with one of my albums and they'd be sat down and he'd be having a bit of a cry about it. And he'd be saying... Oh, you know, I I like him, really. Because John was like that, you know? He could come at you, but really, he'd just lower his glasses a bit and sort of say, it's only me. It was very two-sided like that. Oh, again, Paul. Again, again yeah. with the big pause. I, I like him, really. Yeah, which is definitely not what John said. Again, <laughs> when we compile all the versions of this... There are clearly versions where he's stumbling to get the words out. But whenever Paul tells a story, you have to take the more extreme example. Whatever has the more intense emotions, and that's that's what you got to go with, in my opinion. The rest yes. of the time, he's he's downplaying. And logically, that just is what makes sense. Like, John is, is weeping about liking Paul well exactly he's not gonna be crying going i was really fond of him (laughs) right right he's not so bad right yeah that's silly there's there's also this little quirk of of paul's where he says he could come at you really he'd just lower his glasses a bit (laughs) like as if he did this to everybody (laughs) like yeah (laughs) he was the kind of guy (laughs) who would take his glasses down and say i love you in the middle of an argument to anyone or i mean to anyone really not just yeah, i mean at, it's not at I'm you not saying i he, had anything to do with it i'm just yeah. saying he would just lower his glasses and sort of say and you'd be thinking 
you know, just like the proverbial you, whoever that person might be, could be oh, me. God. I'm not saying it was me. I'm just saying, like, if it were me. Okay. Paul has difficulty taking ownership. Yeah. I know does. that sounds crazy because his, you know, his, uh, his other, the other funny. half is an egomaniac. <laughs> well, but his, and his, but his image, his public image is of someone who's self centered and overbearing usually okay can i just say usually people who are really like that have no problem with the word i well that's the truth okay so what are our takeaways about this visit uh my takeaway is that paul felt like a wrung out sponge on the plane back home (laughs) that is so so much it is it is such a lot now we read like four or five versions of them which are all consistent and to me the most consistent thing out of all of them is that paul is grateful that this is information to that is precious to him that Mm -hmm. meant a lot to him that gave him comfort that gave him comfort because he says it specifically he brought it out a few times and he said it was one of the best things that yoko ever did for me she told me this soon after john died and it gave me, you know, something to hold on to. So there's gratitude here. And there's also just like, there's no doubting their bond or, you know, how much Paul meant to John from this. Yes. So all of that is positive, I think. At least on, on Paul's end, like what he yeah. got out of it. I understand why he's grateful because Yoko could have been like, not now, Paul. I can't deal with you right now. Definitely. Or she could have been like, she could have said, "You don't deserve comfort. You don't even know what I've had to put up with because of you." Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, I have some opinions about Yoko, but I would not, I would not blame her, especially immediately afterward if she, if she was like that. I wouldn't either. I would actually give her a pass if she was just like you. Definitely, she could have gone ham on his ass or just iced him out. Yes. And like, nope. No. I don't have time to talk to you right now, Paul. I don't have time mm-hmm. to fucking reassure you. Right. But she made time for him and she did. She did. She gave him a lot. So. Yeah. And that part of that might have been, and I don't say this insultingly, I'm just saying that guilt is a motivation that people have, uh, that she might have felt guilty about how she blocked his calls. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, even if at the time she what you know she did what she thought was in John's best interest or or in the best interest of their marriage or whatever, or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So not long after that, in May of 1981, Yoko gives an interview to Philip Norman for the Sunday Times. Apparently, uh, Philip Norman had been working on Shout prior to John's murder, uh, but obviously it was published after his murder. Norman famously conducted no interviews with any of the Beatles for this book. Um, But he did interview Yoko. And we're going to share some interesting segments of that interview. So Yoko says, I used to say to John, I think you're a closet fag, you know. Because after we started to live together, John would say to me, do you know why I like you? Because you look like a bloke in drag. You're like a mate. All right. 
it's just an odd thing to share five months after your husband's murder right it's it's very odd yeah well i mean things come out so not only did she say this to philip norman in the sunday times there's an account from joe hagan's sticky fingers the biography of jan wenner that soon after john's death yoko also tells jan wenner and paul mccartney that she believes john was gay hagan writes the winners moved to the west side of manhattan in 1987 right around the corner from ono and became frequent dinner companions after lennon's death owner became lovers with the couple's personal decorator sam Havitoy, a hungarian emigre who met john and yoko when they were shopping for egyptian furniture at a shop he ran with his partner on the upper east side of manhattan Havitoy had a male lover before ono and he would have male lovers after her but he became her companion for 20 years the winners hired Havitoy to decorate their new townhouse Havitoy said winner and ono had a lot in common they're both crazy people he said <laughs> thank you jan but over dinner the winners learned the secrets of the beatles kingdom from ono who would often suggest to winner that john lennon was gay She's always hinted that there was some gay component to John, said Winter, but in a vague or generalized way, like, isn't everybody gay? Or, I always told John he was gay. She also told McCartney this theory after Lennon died, which he didn't believe. Mm. Mm. So, wow. That would have been quite a conversation. Yeah, I don't know what the point of that is. Not of me sharing it, but like I don't I don't understand what the point of her her commenting on that all the time to multiple people. To, yeah. Like I don't know if she's trying to say, "Oh, John was one of you." Like he's gay too. Yawn. Yeah, maybe. Or right. and Sam. and Sam. So either it's something that she wants people to know and she's just sharing. Well, yeah if the fact that she brought it up to paul tells me it it's something that um it's something of a preoccupation for her i think yeah i agree and i don't know if she's getting something off of her chest because it's something that she had to live with Right. that's what i'm saying like is she sharing it because she's like oh and by the way i was married to a gay man for 10 years how about a little respect for me and what i had mm. to put up with you know what i mean yeah like yeah like because i do, it doesn't sound like she's just gossiping about her husband mm -hmm. i mean maybe she is maybe she is i mean because that would well i was gonna say because that would throw a bomb into the Beatles history but it kind of hasn't it hasn't it's weird well yeah. everybody blows it off and I I don't know yeah. why when your wife and the supposed love of your life which I'm not saying she wasn't the love of his life I'm just saying like she might have a good perspective on it people yeah well exactly why would you dismiss her if her if her take is that her husband was gay i mean I, that kind of means something that doesn't mean nothing right well and if 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 this is something that she suspected since they got together as well 
And now 10 years of marriage hasn't changed her mind about that. I mean, that kind of tells you it was a pretty pronounced dynamic. And she's giving this information to the Beatles biographer and the editor of Rolling Stone. Yeah, this information is not on the down low. She's saying it to journalists and celebrities. We can't know precisely when she said this to Paul, except that it was after Lennon died. But what, why would she say this to John's closest male friend slash platonic soulmate mm -hmm. when he's grieving? If I was Paul, considering uh, she just told me about John crying to my records and saying he loved me, my reaction would probably be, are you accusing me of something or accusing us of something? Because why else would she say this to the man she considers her husband's ex-spouse, as she has put it many, many times? You know, saying it to Jan Wenner is one thing, but, but saying it to Paul McCartney is loaded because that was his closest friend for 10 years who he had a melodramatic breakup with you know then right yeah everybody knows and who he then called his you know his ex for the rest of his life so i would definitely take that if i was paul i would be like what are you getting at exactly what are you getting at why are you telling me this so i don't um, know maybe she maybe she was fishing yeah maybe she wanted to see what his reaction was and if paul's like mm, no i don't believe you then maybe that was an answer in and of itself. Okay. Back to the Sunday Times, where Norman is interviewing Yoko. He writes, Paul McCartney, John's partner into songwriting history, provokes a bleak and bitter look. Yoko says, John said that no one ever heard him the way Paul heard him. But it's in the past. It's gone. So that was the portion of the interview that caused Paul to sort of spiral. Yeah. And and call up Hunter Davies. Yeah. In an hours long yeah. therapy well, <laughs> session. Well, he called. Oh, that's he right. Called he Phil called Norman. Phil Norman. Yeah. He left a message and Phil so, never called it back. Could be like we like we were saying, she's lived with this bullshit for 10 years and she's like, oh, well, it's over now. Might as well yeah. let, let the people know John was gay and nobody heard him like Paul. Y'all do the math. Yeah. Can you stop asking me about coming to the studio every day now? Can we stop talking about that? Yeah, right? As the reason for the breakup? Seriously. Seriously. They, these two were already in a mess by the time I walked into that scene. I'm the victim here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's rough. Like... <sighs> saying that no one you know he, paul you hurt john more than anyone else did like that could that could be taken two ways it could be you know you hurt him because you did something bad or it could just be he you know if someone breaks your heart it doesn't mean that they did anything wrong or bad it just means yeah. that you love them and it didn't work out of course. Yes, exactly. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's, that's all John meant. There's not enough information here. You can take that however exactly. you want. 
that Paul is at fault or or not. Like or not. He, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Paul clearly took it to mean that he was at fault somehow. Or at least that's what he's, that's the worry that's driving him to be calling yes. up Philip Norman and calling up Hunter Davies and spinning out. Oh, poor Linda. Oh my God. But also that is a full on wild thing to say six it is. months after John's death to put that in the paper because obviously it's going to have bad repercussions on Paul. We all miss John. We all loved him so much. I know he was such an amazing force of goodness and light and wholesomeness on the earth. It is so tragic that his loss. You know what? No one ever hurt him as badly as Paul McCartney. It's not, I mean, she's basically putting a target on him. Yeah, she is. Yeah, she is. Now, if she's just saying like, yeah, he was heartbroken over Paul, by the way that's well that's not aggressive feels... at all she's basically saying john was incredibly hurt by the breakup and that he took it harder than anything in his life that's all she's saying well and if if she feels like she's been on the business end of john's heartbreak yes. if he's been taking that out on her and making it her problem right for 10 years then that makes sense too of course you resent yes your partner's ex who broke their heart Many songs have been written about that person. <laughs> you know. Yes. Paul wrote Dear Boy about that person. Yeah. So makes sense right. that Paul is that person to Yoko. Oh, he's definitely that person to Yoko. <laughs> uh, yeah. Boy. So nobody's re begrudging her that resentment, <laughs> honestly. Like, <laughs> yeah. She also says. John used to say he'd had two great partnerships. One was with Paul McCartney. The other was with Yoko Ono. And I discovered both of them, he used to say. Not bad going, is it? <laughs> it's one of the cutest things that John has ever said. As a talent <laughs> yeah. scout. Yes, I right? I'm pretty good. That's <laughs> pretty adorable. Yes, yeah, so that's one of John's cutest quotes. And it's, it is nice of Yoko to say yeah. that because it is a it, way of yeah. saying yeah he had two great loves or he yes. had two great partnerships or you know mm -hmm. she's putting is, them on equal footing yeah it's also self-serving because it elevates her to paul's level creatively yes but on the flip side it also elevates paul to her level personally as a spouse yep i feel like this interview for sunday times is kind of a weird mixture of her like oversharing getting stuff off her chest her saying a little too much her her I revealing mean, things she probably wasn't intent yeah so you're saying this is her paul mccartney interview kind of i mean i think <laughs> she is trying to be mindful of john's legacy and say things that that would maintain a good image of him but at the same time you know she might be like okay but a minute for yoko here and the shit that i went through mm-hmm she might be just purging some things and dumping them on Paul, not specifically to be mean or mm -hmm. whatever, but just uh, if she's like, listen, Paul, you need to handle your Paul and John business. Exactly. I'm not doing that anymore. That's for yeah. you to deal with. Yep. That's the one thing I'm not going to be doing anymore is spending my time like navigating your stupid relationship. Yeah. Or like trying to suss out what I am and am not allowed to say. Hmm. Yeah, so that's probably complicated by 
Paul and Yoko's sort of inability to or difficulty sort of laid their cards on the table between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we know how Paul reacted to this story in the Sunday Times with Philip Norman. Yeah. He fucking spiraled. And he reached out to, of all people, Hunter Davies. Who says? Not long after John's death, I had some strange conversations with Paul. He seemed so upset by so many things, not least of all, John's death. This was in May 1981, and I jotted down in a diary some of the things he told me. John's death had grown into a sort of cult, with instant books already appearing, and the papers were still full of it. Many people, in praising John, were at the same time putting down Paul, or so it appeared. He felt he had already been criticized in a book just out, written by Philip Norman, formerly a colleague of mine on the Sunday Times. But what had really got him upset that day was an interview with Yoko, in which Yoko was quoted as saying that Paul had hurt John more than any other person. Paul thought they were some of the cruelest words he had ever read. Paul says, I can't understand why Yoko is saying this. The last time I spoke to her, she was great. She told me she and John had just been playing one of my albums and had cried. Hunter suggests, why don't you ring her up and find out if she really said that? And Paul says, I'm not ringing her up on that. It's too trivial. It's not the time. I wouldn't just ring up on that. And then he goes into a massive spiral about what about all the times John hurt me? Which turns into a whole thing about how people suspect that he has ulterior motives when he doesn't. And people think he's holding back and that he's really thinking something nasty when he says something nice and he's not. And he he's frustrated that people don't understand him. And, you know, mm-hmm. he unloads all of the stuff about John what it was like in the beginning and what it was like at the end and the jealousy and i mean he it's actually quite he reveals quite a bit actually yeah it's very painful and part of it has to do with the press they're really ganging up on paul and they're being very negative about paul and blaming him and making him out to be a villain and an aggressor Uh but also real stuff about the actual hurts that he experienced from john and like the actual pain that they put each other through yeah and yoko saying that the idea that paul had hurt john so much is what hunter says is bothering him the most right so i do think this is a two-fold thing part of it is like that's a terrible thing to say in public because it makes him out to be John's nemesis. It makes him John's antagonist and it sets up a really bad dynamic that's going to get a lot worse. However, he's also very clearly upset about the thought that he did hurt John. Of course, yes. I feel like what he's struggling with here is like the mixed messages that he's getting from Yoko and he doesn't know what to do with those two things she's telling me that he's crying while he's listening to my records 
and then she just said i hurt him more than anybody else and he's he what does that mean Mm. well can he not put those two things together or can he not understand why yoko would say one thing and then so cruel yeah but if it was just a matter of like that bitch is two-faced then he would just be like what a two-faced bitch that's true that's true i think he cares less that yoko was mean to him you know then he cares that she's dropping some sort of truth bomb that he didn't that he's he feels left out of the loop on what am i not understanding about this what am i not getting and also because he asked he asked hunter point blank he's like everybody keeps saying i hurt him what are the examples what are the time nobody can say what it is i did what did i do which is a genuine question of course yeah what did i do that was so horrible obviously he loved me which is just like well paul i mean you can love someone and be incredibly hurt by them at the same time yeah in fact that's usually how it goes you know right (laughs) people you you don't care about right generally can't hurt you that bad they can piss you off sure they can like damage you material materially but that's clearly not what yoko's talking about it's not like paul pissed john off more than anybody else Mm -hmm. i I think if that would be bad but it would be something different from he hurt very very different because paul loves john he doesn't want to hurt him he that's a terrible thing what was the worst thing that you could be told about somebody that you've just lost exactly and that's that's why i for this particular quote i it's hard for me to buy the purely like yoko just needed to unload or get something off her chest i feel like there's no way to say that unless you want to hurt that person and maybe even she's uh, regretting being so kind oh that's how it's like I, I, I gotta balance that out paul mccartney is not my friend he you know he doesn't deserve to only think good things about the relationship Mm. so if in that first phone call with paul she was trying to be nice by telling paul that john loved him but then afterwards she sees paul talking like he's taking that as absolution like he he's taking too much comfort in that which he definitely does not deserve because it was way more complicated and paul did hurt john a lot and that hurt Yoko a lot. And so, you know, screw him. Mm. Like she might be thinking, yeah, I said John loved you. I didn't say you deserved it. <laughs> I had to take the good and the bad. You have to take the good and the bad too, Paul. Exactly. Yeah. It's not all pizza and fairy tales. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> nice plug there, by the way. <laughs> I know. <laughs> for more on that someone should make a five part (laughs) series about that (laughs) so while Paul is trying to figure all of this out Yoko gives an interview to Rolling Stone in October of 1981 she says of the other Beatles it's like we're a family We say all sorts of things, but in the end, they are close people because of what they meant to John. 
It's fate that these four people were brought together. They are brothers. So my feeling is, even if they exclude me or hurt me, I'm not going to say anything unkind about them. Because if you asked them, maybe they would say that they were hurt because of things John and I did. We don't socialize because they are in England. But George called me, and Paul called me, after what happened in December, and they were quite civilized about it. It's like when Brian Epstein died. I think everybody was unhappy and shocked about it, but they are very sensitive, and they weren't talking. I see the same situation here. I'm sure Paul and George are deeply shocked. Ringo expressed it in the way that he does best, but, you know, internalizing it is probably a very personal lament for the others. They don't know what to do about it. The thing that jumps out at me now, hearing you read that, is her bringing up Brian Epstein's death, mm-hmm. which she wasn't there for. Right. I mean, she was hanging around a little bit, but it, she wasn't in the yeah. circle at that time. Well, um, I'm sure she got an earful from John, at least during primal scream therapy. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. And the fact that she brings it up to show that George and probably more specifically Paul are not reaching out to her and are not talking and that they're internalizing. I'm assuming that means John expressed to Yoko that that was their reaction when Brian died. Like he couldn't talk to Paul. Paul shut down, didn't want to talk about it. And that hurt him. So she's saying like, I'm trying not to be hurt by it because I know from what John has told me that that's how Paul tends to handle death. Some people want to look at pictures after someone dies and some people can't stand to do that. Right. That's really interesting. So it does kind of signal to me that it probably was a problem for John. The fact that he would comment on it to Yoko means it probably was something that upset him. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good catch. I'm wondering, was was Yoko not invited to Ringo and Barbara's wedding? I just looked up pictures and I couldn't find any of her. They were married in oh, April yeah. of 81 and this interview is from October of 81. Oh, that's an amazing catch too. She's definitely not there. I mean, maybe she was invited and she she was like, I can't. Yeah. And Ringo's like, please, no pressure. Don't feel, you know. Of course. Oh, but that would be sad if she feels like, why didn't you invite me? Yeah. It's interesting because you know we all know that Ringo immediately or pretty soon afterwards exactly. came out to see her well and the fact that she doesn't mention that is what kind of puts my antenna up because of 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 the three of Paul George and Ringo we typically think that Ringo was the one who was the most supportive of Yoko well and who never really had a bad relationship with her right right yeah so I think we could take away from that that she does feel excluded and hurt about well you know. definitely but she's not taking ownership of that like she's just sort of slipping that in there yeah if for instance i was to feel <laughs> excluded and hurt yes if for instance hypothetically i'm gonna assume that that paul saw this story and we do know that 
he did reach out to her because we have a very interesting soundbite from spring of 1984. It's labeled as February or March of 84. And here he indicates that he did finally reach out to Yoko. We don't know when exactly this conversation took place. And we don't know if he ever asked her about the no one ever hurt John the way Paul hurt him comment. Or if he was motivated by her comment about being excluded. But based on this soundbite from Paul, it definitely sounds like they're both sort of hesitant and a little suspicious of each other. Yes. Problem in other people's eyes, I think, is that she's honest. The honesty is what hurts a lot of people, I think. We didn't know her too well, really, uh, until quite recently. Until maybe um, a few years ago. 80s, you know, beginning of the 80s, when I just thought, well, maybe I've misunderstood. You know, maybe it's my mistake, um, not hers. So I telephoned her and started talking to her about just things generally. She said, Why are you telephoning? And uh, I said, Well, you know, I think I've misunderstood you and I think I've made a big mistake. And. Uh, as you were John's wife, and um, I was very fond of John, I feel that he would have liked me to telephone you and, and kind of say hello and see what's going on. And she said, well, don't do me any favors, you know. Don't do it out of pity or don't sympathy. I don't want that, you know. I don't want charity. Which at first I thought, hmm, hmm. Oh. <laughs> but I had to say, no, 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 she's right. She's right. I thought she was a hard woman. I don't think she is now. I think she's just the opposite. I think she's a very uh, loving, caring woman. Uh, I think I thought she was uh, pushy, uh, which I think is wrong. I don't think she is. I think she's just uh, herself. She's determined more than some other people to be herself. Some people will um, just give in. She won't. I think I thought she was pushy. Well, I which I think is wrong. I don't think she is. It's like, shut the fuck up. Who cares about pushy? That's true. I'm like, let women be pushy, you dumb bitch. Fucking. Ugh. She's. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, I mean, what we know for sure is that he did call her. It sounds like <laughs> when he says, she's like, what do you want, Paul? And he's like, oh, I just, you know, I was just checking in. I just thought maybe. I mean, I thought John would like me to check in on you. There's no there's no man of the house now. And also, like, he thinks, well, maybe if I know what I did, but she doesn't know I know, I can prove to her that I'm not that way. <laughs> what? <laughs> if, okay. If, if I hurt John by being insensitive. Yeah. Oh, if you're that's like. That's what she thinks. Hey Yoko, how's it going? The, I'm, this is Paul McCartney. I'm just calling up sensitively to find out yes. if uh, how you're doing because I care about yeah. other people's feelings. How? What's up? I guess it's manipulative. It, well, but... it is, but I think it's. I think he. But I think he's bad manipulative. Like I think it's ham-fisted. That's why I think. I think like he <laughs> he calls he calls up. He obviously has something on his mind. I think that's why she's like. What do you want, Paul? Like, what? Right, right, right. Obviously, not calling up to shoot the breeze. I just wanted to see how you were. What? Why? 
well uh because you're john's wife yeah <laughs> she's like fuck you so you don't actually care about me as a person yeah cool can we can i hang up now right <laughs> right maybe he was calling out of duty and thinking oh i should be nicer but what we can tell is that at the very least he wants to make nice and not just for appearances sake but for like i think he genuinely wants to make nice with her another thing that might be influencing paul's point of view at this time is all the books that are being published besides shout in 1983 alone we've got the love you make by peter brown which we know paul and linda hated yes uh dakota days by john green no idea if paul read that but it says some slightly disturbing things um plus there's loving john by may pang and my life by pete shotton i'm sure there's others that i'm neglecting but the point is paul is undoubtedly overwhelmed by all this information coming out about john because you know john and paul were estranged in the last four or so years of john's life even though they talked sporadically and even if they saw each other even if they had good moments in between all the weird moments and estrangement john still said some awful and sometimes untrue things about paul in public and he was inconsistent yes he was kind of night and day like we were saying before smoochy one second and like slappy the next moment i wonder if a reason for that is if john is overcompensating if he says something smoochy and he's like oh shit i don't want to when it comes to the public stuff i would say yes because he's posturing and like part of his whole identity is built upon being better than paul right and i hate to put it that way but like it's kind of true like he's always compared to paul so insisting to himself and others that he's better than paul is just a way of elevating himself because if he's not if he's not better than paul then the then the alternative is that he's not as good as paul and that's where he doesn't want to live he doesn't want to go there so to avoid feeling worthless and feeling less than paul he has to feel like he's better than paul yeah and and i think the way that that manifests itself is him writing in a journal every day i'm better than paul you know that is it is how it is we have to acknowledge it robert rosen is one of the most prominent people to have read john's late 70s diaries and he says that john wrote awful mean nasty things about paul and paul's music repeatedly in his diaries and that he was obsessed with paul and obsession will make you crazy i mean anybody who's obsessed with another person that's never a hundred percent positive <laughs> it's never good yeah, you know what i mean true. it's mm -hmm. just not that always goes dark. someplace dark yeah and rosen was also very clear about that he's like yeah john was thinking writing and talking constantly about paul yeah i mean it makes me very sad not just because he's a great artist and he should have his own self-esteem and his own self-worth and 
mm-hmm. whatever. But it's also sad because, you know, at some point they helped each other and they made each other better. They had a really good thing going for a long yeah. time. Yeah, so and they were proud of each other and wanted they, each other to do well and complimented each other in public. And yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's very sad. And again, even though Paul is competitive with John, I don't think I agree. I I don't think he's at this level. Well, I mean, listen, to a certain extent, it's a little unavoidable that if you're that closely enmeshed with somebody and you're that sort of codependent with them, if you break up and go with other people, like in a way, it's kind of unavoidable that there's going to be jealousy and, um, yes and and bitterness there's gonna be a little of that because it hurts i mean breakups hurt it's a stupidly obvious thing to say but like they do yes nobody likes to see their ex with somebody else especially and they don't like to see them happy with somebody else it's painful but in a best case scenario you deal with that and you move on and you ideally get to a place where you're okay with that person and you remember why you loved them in the first place and you get to the point where you wish them the best yes at the very least you are self-aware enough and have enough objectivity that you think okay i still have these feelings but those feelings are my problem to deal with and so i'm going to not externalize them to newspapers yeah i mean the best case scenario is that you detach of course you can remember the good things and you can have goodwill towards that person mm-hmm. all i know for sure is that john never detached to that level no like he's still post-divorce in 1980 yeah it's yeah like he, he hasn't moved on from from when they broke up 10 years ago it's almost like he's still in the throes of the breakup which is very strange and i don't know if it's because they didn't have the closure that they needed you know maybe it was just like the hovering potential of them getting back together maybe that was what kept him from moving on and also maybe it was because his identity was just so tied up in paul yeah Or maybe it gave him something to do. Like, maybe it gave him a reason to live. Maybe nothing ever burned within him so hot as whatever he felt for Paul. Be that anger or love or hatred or desire or whatever it was or all of that mixed together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, obsessions can be you know the animating force of someone's life they can be your your fuel yeah well you know what there are a lot of novels and plays written about the power of revenge you know it it can take over people's lives and they're all cautionary tales for a reason I think that's something that Paul is having to come to terms with also after John's death is that there was good and bad. Yeah. And there was good and bad to their relationship too. Yeah. And that the bad didn't negate the good. 
and like this is the the whole thing with albert goldman's book it's like if it does negate the good then john was human garbage, garbage. through and Absolutely. through yeah all the people he loved he damaged doesn't mean he wasn't a great person and a great artist for paul not only has he gone through that he has a he has come to terms with that just as a human being who was in a crazy relationship with this other person but then to have no nothing nobody's writing ridiculous things about your relationship and putting them in print would just be a crazy making on top of the, all the rest of it and it's in particular not a situation that's going to bring out the best in paul We recently discovered this article that was posted by two Beatle people. It's an interview from January 20th, 1985, where Paul says a couple interesting things about Yoko. Question. You get on with Yoko? Answer. Medium. I introduced her to John. She originally came around to me for some charity thing, and I said... Well, you know, love, I've got this friend called John. I don't know why I palmed her off onto him. Maybe it was because I thought he would be more interested than I was in whatever it was she was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yoko's okay, really. She's very misunderstood. She's not a pin-downable person. I can't really call her irrational because then she'll go and do something rational now she's suffering like all other widows possibly more horribly terribly badly disguised shade this is just my personal take but i think there is a lot of projection going on in this particular thing here because he says she's not a pin downable person and maybe she's not maybe she is legitimately hard for paul to pin down and he doesn't you know she's slippery to him that's fair and that's fine but I also think that is, if you if you could probably put in a nutshell what it is about Paul that is so disturbing and dislikable and upsetting to people, it is that. He, he is very hard to pin down. Mm-hmm. He is hard to know. Also, he says she's misunderstood. And I think Paul definitely feels misunderstood. Absolutely. And he says she's suffering. And while I have no doubt that she is suffering, surely Paul is suffering immensely as well. Yes. But he could never and would never ever say that. Back to the interview. The interviewer says to Paul, John seems to have gone through a hate phase to free himself of the Beatles. Did you? And Paul says, no, my thing with John was more disappointment than hate. Paul is looking somber, but detached. In truth, I've never been able to hate John. He was always a crazy character. But you see, we were like married. So you got bitterness. It's not a woman scorned. It's two men. Probably worse. Also, I had to make way for Yoko. I had to make way for Yoko. 
there's Paul taking a level of ownership that he doesn't always take. That's true. Like, I personally had to get out of the way. Not, John didn't even look at me anymore once Yoko came on the scene. It was like, I didn't exist. He's saying, no, I had to, I had to, I had to pull back. Yeah. And that is something he reiterates in another interview from this year, from 1985, when he says that he and John were so intense that when John started dating Yoko, he had to push Paul away to, in order to commit to her. Yeah. Well, and he's also saying like, and by the way, we were married. I was there first. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's not a woman scorned. It's two men. Which is even worse. <laughs> I think that's kind of funny. I mean, I think he's actually being self-deprecating. Uh, no, I think for once he's acknowledging that like men are even worse in breakups. Mm. I think he's saying like, hey, you think it's bad breaking up with a woman? Have you ever broken up with a guy? Mm. <laughs> Let me tell you yeah. what that's like. Not fun. Mm. And he's not wrong, is he? <sighs> okay. What about Paul saying, I've never been able to hate John? I think yeah. Paul speaks for a lot of people there. And and to be fair, the hate phase was intermittent. I will say it's it's like somewhat uncharacteristically observant of the interviewer to call it a hate phase. And, and specifically yeah. a hate phase to free himself of the Beatles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a shockingly insightful thing for a journalist to say during this period right yeah i mean not that it you know i don't think it really worked he didn't free himself but whatever well obviously he didn't free himself well none of them ever freed themselves from the beatles exactly so by far, the biggest issue of 1985 in Paul and Yoko land is Michael Jackson's purchase of ATV, which includes John and Paul's publishing company, Northern Songs. And we're not going to over-explain all the intricacies of this business transaction, uh, because for one reason, we don't fully understand it ourselves. But even if we did, it would take a long time to really explain it thoroughly. So we're just going to hit the basics and we're going to avoid making judgments on any of the parties. We're just going to be talking about how they felt about each other. So essentially, Paul and Yoko tried to team up to buy Northern Songs from ATV in 1982, I believe. Um, but it was a lot of money and Yoko didn't want to pay the market price. Uh... Yes, she wanted, she wanted to mega lowball and paul tried to work with her a little bit but she wasn't really into it and negotiations kind of fizzled and then they fell out of touch meanwhile this australian media tycoon named robert holmes accord was buying up shares and for whatever reason atv went back on the market in 1985 paul approached this guy he was like a a young like pseudo cool-ish rock and roll guy to try to make a deal and meanwhile as described by philip norman in his mccartney biography yoko was also turning the charm on atv's new boss 
with no obvious purpose other than, perhaps, to disrupt Paul's dealings with him. She invited Robert Holmes Accord and his wife Janet to the Dakota and gave them a guided tour ending at the white piano where John had played Imagine. So moved was Janet Holmes Accord that she arranged for ATV to make Yoko a gift of the song's copyright. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what Philip Norman is basing the no purpose other than to disrupt Paul's dealings. He throws perhaps in there, so he's obviously, you know, he can't be sure. No one can be sure. But why is she, she, because she had no plans to make a purchase. Yeah. And she got a free song out of it. <laughs> so Well, but that doesn't mean that she's necessarily trying to, you know, sabotage Paul. She might just be trying to get whatever she can get. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't see how her getting a gift of Imagine would affect Paul's dealings with him well it doesn't it doesn't she's just getting what she needs so so especially if she has no plans to buy them then she's like as long as i get imagine i'm good which is what ends up happening because so once she has that song she's just like paul i'm not buying anything you know john's royalties are going to come to her soon enough anyway because he's deceased right it seems most likely that yoko's just biding her time that's why she doesn't want to spend the money which is which is a perfectly fine position for her. I mean that she does what's in her best financial interest. Obviously, mm-hmm. that makes sense from where she's sitting, but yeah. it ties Paul's hands a bit because it now means that if Paul wants his songs back, he's going to have to fork up the money for the entire thing, right? On his own, number one, and then it also means even if he's successful in doing that. That means he owns all of Lennon McCartney for himself, which is going to yes. create massive problems. Yeah, that's huge PR problem. That's it for the Beatles. I mean, that's going to create. In fact, that's what Yoko said. She was like, "Oh well, I can't, I can't do it because it will create problems within the Beatles," which it wouldn't have if she I, and Paul had made a deal and together. Gotten yeah, and just gone fifty-fifty. And if they go in fifty-fifty and they split it fifty-fifty, then it's yeah. What's the problem? That's just an excuse. Which is fine. Anyways, point is, Michael Jackson has a lot of cash and he wants to get into publishing. So he starts making moves on Holmes Accord as well. And because Yoko's not interested in making the purchase, plus she now has Imagine, which is John's main moneymaker, she passed. And that left Paul on his own. Eventually, Michael bought the catalog for $47.5 million. And there we go. Why is Imagine included in the Northern Songs bunch? I keep how did wondering. That, how did that happen? I keep wondering that myself. Maybe Alan Klein had gotten John a deal for his solo publishing that mandated that he stayed with atv i don't fucking know i don't know I, like maybe they weren't part of the northern songs package maybe they were part of the atv package because paul kept saying i don't want all of atv i just want the london mccart i want i just want my fucking songs back and right. they were like no 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 that's not how this is gonna work you're gonna buy the whole thing well exactly if we have something you want and so you have to give us of more than you than you want to in order right. to get what you want yeah, I don't know. Well, case in point, this is why we're not, we're trying not to get bogged down in too many of the financial details. It's not really Yoko's fault, and it's not really Michael's fault, and I can't really point to anything that 
Paul did badly, but he just didn't close the deal, you know? Right. Yeah. And then his main annoyance with Michael was that he's like, okay, you bought it. Now let's negotiate, though. And Michael's like, I'm sorry. Um, I can't hear you, Paul. Right, right, right. <laughs> and I understand why that's extraordinarily frustrating to Paul, but it's also kind of like, well, just kind of is the way it is, you know? Yeah. That's showbiz. Right. But, you know, blame aside, it is still something that we know is really upsetting. Of course. And even if Yoko hasn't done anything, you know, bad or wrong, she's she's just looking out for herself, looking out for number one. And that's fine. It would definitely make Paul be like, well, I guess we're not a team then. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, so I'm not, you know, if you're not on my team, I'm not on your team. Exactly. So, okay, cool. I guess we're all, it's, we're every man every for man himself. Every man for himself. So in 1986, Paul sits down with Chris Salowitz, who is writing a biography, and really opens up. It's uh, like notoriously one of Paul's most candid interviews. So in that interview that we just shared, without going into much detail, he says in 1985 that he met Yoko first and that she came around to him for a charity thing. But in 1986, he goes into a lot more detail. And this is the story he tells. Yoko turned up to see me first in London. She met me before she met oh, Yes, no, I didn't know that. See, this is what I mean. You know, they, and you won't hear it off them either because they're, they're Scott and Zelda. You know, they want the image, they want the story just how they put it out. She turned up um, for a charity thing. It was something to do with, she wanted manuscripts. Something to do with avant garde music, Cage, uh, John, John Cage in New York. There was some benefit for somebody. And she was looking for manuscripts, uh, any any spare lyric sheets you had around, and I was pretending to be on the backs of envelopes and quite funky little things. And to tell you the truth, I didn't want to give her any. Big deal. So, you know, I'm allowed, I don't have to, do I? It just, I didn't want it. I kept these manuscripts, they're very precious to me, and the cause didn't seem so great, I forget what it was. So I said, but does it, my mate might be interested. John, you know, and I gave her John's address, and. I think that was first how they hooked up. Um, and then she had her exhibition and stuff. And then their, their side of the story starts to happen then. They want the story just how they put it out there. He nailed it there. That is 100% yep. correct. Mm -hmm. I mean, to a certain extent, we all want the story out the way that we want it, right? We all like to control well, of our, course. Our narratives. I mean, that's what fucking Instagram is, right? But when you're uh, steamrolling over other people's <laughs> accounts of their own story. Well, I think he is not at all wrong to push back because this I is agree. this is Beatles history. It's important and it 100% involves him. So that he can push back on. As far as whatever happens to them post-Beatles, you can definitely make the case is none of his business. And he doesn't really get into that business. It's true. The things he pushes back on are the things that he's involved with. You know, like their version of The Lost Weekend. 
he's like um excuse me are we just leaving out the part where you came to my house and asked me to get involved of course yeah it's, it's insulting and then and then expect me to just be quiet about it and pretend right. that i wasn't even there and i'm yeah. not important that is a lot to ask of him yeah something i find really interesting about this quote is he seems defensive about his decision not to give her a manuscript which Me i think too. i've never seen anyone criticize him for that although I, maybe maybe he thinks yoko really resented it though i i don't know you're you're 100 right to call that out because i find it weird too he's like preemptively defensive about it yeah and big I deal keep, i'm I allowed keep, I don't have to, do I? No, Paul, you don't. You don't. Who said you did? <laughs> right. Who's going to come back at him like, geez, he he was so parsimonious, you know, like he he won't give over an original Beatles manuscript to a stranger who knocked on his door. Right. No one is going to say that. Well, you know what, though? People are saying a lot of things about him right now that make no sense to be criticizing someone that's for, well so. that's a good point that's a good point but he he might have lost perspective of what people are going to be angry about and what they're not or maybe he thinks that yoko personally resented that which would be weird but maybe maybe he's talking to something internally inside himself and he's like why didn't you just give her the fucking manuscript paul none, none of this uh, oh uh, none of this would have happened Ooh. Oh, <laughs> I would not put that out of uh, the realm of possibility for sure. In any case, I trust this story because he's told Definitely. it many times over the years. Yes. Always in the same way. And it was published in the Barry Miles book. So it's for the record. He stands by it. And Yoko yeah. has never contradicted it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I don't think she was after a husband or something. I think her goal is to be famous. Yeah. She wants yeah. sponsorship of her art. Completely agree. Although she did want, we'll have to talk about this too, because there's an entry in Mal's diary that Yoko has an appointment to see Paul because she wants to put his ass in her ass movie. That's true, but I think that is, I think that's just because of fame, because of Beatles. Yes. Oh, definitely. A Paul's famous ass, like Paul's ass in her movie is going to yes, immediately no, give her, yeah, publicity and, and make her famous. Yeah. No, but I, I don't think it's ultimately because she's after his ass. I think it's because she can use his ass to yes. gain, yeah, publicity for herself. No, but I mean, but on the other hand, in the swinging 60s, the pants are off yeah i mean assuming that she is horny yeah which again would be completely fine would be totally yeah of course it's not that big a deal that she did this but then she does this and then afterward just lies her head off about not knowing about the beatles not being interested in the beatles and she never knew anything until she met john like that yeah if i were paul that would be so annoying it is annoying to him that's why he brings yes. it up <laughs> right it is not common knowledge that yoko was doing all this stuff and i feel like that's important to explore why sometimes paul is so bitchy this is the context that he's working in 
the balls on this woman. Oh my god. And so it makes complete sense for Paul to be like, you guys are ridiculous. This is so stupid. Why do I have to pretend? Go along with your story. But I was nothing <laughs> but an annoyance to you, Yoko. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the real. She that's literally tried to photograph his ass. <laughs> that you don't know him. You went to his house and asked for his personal manuscripts. I think yes. you know who he is. Yeah. I'm sorry, were you blindfolded and just dropped in front of his house? <laughs> like, what are you even saying? Mel Evans wrote in his diary, Paul has appointment with Japanese lady who wants to photograph his bottom. <laughs> yeah, and Hunter Davies is on the record talking about how when he started writing the Beatles biography in 67, she started approaching him for money. And again, mm -hmm. I think that's fine. I'm not judgmental about that. You're an artist. You got to hustle. You think the Beatles weren't hustling when they were trying to get famous? They wanted to be famous and they were whores. So yeah, so no judgment to Yoko. It's just that it's frustrating that that is not part of the story that always gets reported. Yeah. Cynthia Lennon is very much on the record about behavior that Yoko exhibited toward John. Yeah. I guess then it turned into a love story. So it would cheapen it for people to know that Yoko called John so much he had to change his phone number multiple times, jumped in the car once with him and Cynthia. She threatened to kill herself if he didn't give her money. She doesn't want people to know that. There's that, but I think the bigger issue is the idea that Yoko freed John from the prison of the Beatles gave him the artistic freedom and and expanded his horizons you can't tell that bullshit fucking story if she's originally pursuing Paul McCartney yeah yeah if she's originally very invested in forming a relationship with the Beatles because they are Beatles with money then she can't also be sort of this ethereal pure artist unsullied by you know commercialism and yes exactly she can't be the anti-beetle if she's been courting the Beatles for a year narratively it's important that she enters the picture as an innocent on the terms that she defines that meaning she's always pure. artistically pure right the whole point of of her art is that it's anti-commercial and that's the forbidden fruit that she brings john you know because he's trapped in this commercial uh enterprise with paul because paul only cares about craftsmanship and and commercial and pop music she opens him up to an alternative to all that and makes him a better artist by unleashing right. his inner fucking realness right that he didn't have with paul contempt for average people yeah 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 so for that mythology to survive it requires that she stumbles into this situation unawares yes right john stumbles onto her unawares right he's stumbling into an art gallery because he's an art lover right not because yeah. this is paul's enterprise mm -hmm. right because paul doesn't understand art 
Right. It's important that Paul is pushed out of that whole narrative because he's set up as the antithesis to John's artistic freedom. Yeah. He can't be the guy taking him to the alternative bookshop. He can't be the guy introducing him to the art gallery. That makes no sense. He's the one keeping John on a leash, like forcing him to be in this commercial shit show of the fucking Beatles, which is not as valuable as John Lennon solo, which is what Yoko helps him to realize. I don't know. Their their relationship with like commercialism and marketing versus authenticity and truth is so messed up. The idea that like the biggest rock star on the planet is not commercial. It's like singing Imagine No Possessions in a Fur Coat. Yes, or putting your heir to the throne six-year-old on stage in a t-shirt that says working class hero. Okay. During his interview with Chris Salowich, Paul tells a story about going to see Yoko in New York at her request and then being jerked around, canceled on and rescheduled a few times. I mean, I went at Yoko's request. I went to New York recently. I went to New York. She said she wanted to see me. And I said I was going through New York and stuff. And, uh, so I kind of stopped off and rang her. She said she couldn't see me that day. I was in New York, I was like 400 yards away from her. And I said, well, I mean, I'll pop over any time today, five minutes, 10 minutes, whenever you can squeeze me in. She said, it's gonna be very difficult. I said, well, okay, I understand. What is the reason, by the way? She said, um, I was up all night with Sean. I said, well, I understand that. I got four kids, you know, I understand that. It's terrible, but you're bound to have a minute today, sometime. I said, I'm leaving soon, can't really hang around. And she asked me to come, flown in special. Oh, are you going there specially? Yeah, to see her. Yeah, to see her. She didn't see me. So I, I, so I, I kind of a little bit humiliated. But I said, okay, nine thirty tomorrow morning. Then let's make an appointment. She rang up about nine o'clock and said, could you make it tomorrow morning? But I mean, completely off the record. I mean, she's still something. Isn't she? She's still, I was told she's still in method, isn't she? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, so that, that's the kind of thing, you know, what I'm saying is like, it wasn't all my fault. At the end of the day, I think Yoko is used to being able to manipulate people and to uh, overpower people. But Paul is not one of those people. Mm. Isn't immediately obvious when you meet him. So I can see why she would find that confusing at first or irritating or just frustrating. Well, and you know what? So was John. So was young teenage John. Oh, yeah. Everyone jumped to do what he told them to do. And then along came Paul. Soft-spoken, easygoing, friendly, smiley Paul, who would never give an inch when pushed to the show. Yes, exactly. He's like the one horse that John cannot tame yeah yoko yeah paul is not mm -mm. no and i don't i i don't think paul likes games not those kind of games anyway and you know what paul is probably similar he's used to being able to get his way with people too. that's true that's true yes this story is 
it's funny because it's Yoko pulling the rescheduling cat and mouse games like she used to do with John. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I mean, and I, I do understand, I do get Paul's point of view. I don't know. It's a little petty to bring up, I guess. It is It is pretty disrespectful of his time, though. And I'm not saying that because his, is. his time means more than anybody else's time. But, like... No, yeah, it's... It's... It's inconsiderate. At the least. And especially if this was all planned in advance and i wouldn't say this about anyone else except that we know that she did this on purpose to john yeah he says so that's the kind of thing what i'm saying is it wasn't all my fault you know she plays games and they play games you know this wasn't just me being unreasonable i'll tell you one thing it seems almost designed to make the other party less amenable in the future to doing nice things or favors for you which potentially could be spun into and then i asked him to do the simple thing and he wouldn't even do it for me mm. i'm just saying you can think like a bitch when you want to. i can i can <laughs> i would never do that i'm just saying <laughs> playing it out in my head like what are what what are going to be the completely foreseeable consequences of this interaction you know maybe it's not maybe it's not calculated or anything but she just very much is one of those people who who does things to push people away and then she wants to kind of try to reel them back in and then she pushes them away again and and you know ends up with being estranged from people over and over and over and over and over again in her life. Like, I think by this time, and there are other parts in the Salowich interview where Paul really kind of asserts himself, mm -hmm. says, you know, this was not all my fault. I still am processing in a lot of ways what happened. I still don't completely understand. Right. Um, I tried to be sensitive to John when things fell apart. Mm -hmm. I, I was doing my best. I could have done better, I'm sure, but I was doing my best. Yeah. And he talks about the uh, the news item where someone had discovered the Apple book from 1971 where John scratched out wedding on paul's wedding okay. photo and wrote funeral right and and paul fortunately and correctly points to that and says yeah i mean what the fuck i think right. that should tell you that there's something going on in him mm -hmm. yes that is you not know, my fault yeah that i didn't cause or deserve Yes, and isn't about my jealousy. Right. It seems like he is slowly but surely kind of accepting that he might have meant more to John than he realized. Uh, maybe, maybe in ways he hadn't realized. Yeah, well, and how, how unwell John was. Right, both of those things. 
yeah, that that John wasn't always actually responding to anything that Paul did. That John was sometimes just being irrational. Yeah. And yes. yeah, overreacting. It doesn't mean that Paul never did anything wrong. Of course. Sometimes he didn't have to do anything wrong. Right. Well, and it also means that not every single interaction that they ever had was started from a clean slate. So we have this quote from 1987 from Rolling Stone, and we think it's important because it it speaks to that issue of Paul being written out of John's story. It's just like divorce. It's that you were so close and so in love that if anyone decides to start talking dirty, great, then Pandora's box is open. That's what happened with us. In the end, it was like, oh, you want to know the truth about him? Right, I'll tell you. Obviously, I go over this ground in my mind. I was one of the biggest friends in John's life, one of the closest people to him. I can't claim to be the closest, although it's possible. It's contentious, but I wouldn't, I don't need that credit. But I was certainly among the three or four people who were closest to him in his life, I would have thought. And obviously, it was very hurtful. Actually, it was really nice that after John died, Yoko was quite kind in telling me that he did really love me. Because it looked like he didn't. He says, because it looked like it didn't. So... This is just one interpretation, and I know that most people interpret it as saying Paul thinks or Paul fears that he didn't love him, but he doesn't say because it felt like he didn't. He says it looked like he didn't, meaning like, I know sure. how it looks. Yes. Get I like know that. it looks bad, folks. Yes, that's what it's I what always... It seems, though. Yes, yeah. I always feel like that's what he's saying. He's like, listen, I know how I sound. I read the Playboy interview, too, so... Yeah. And because I know the shitty things you're going to write about me. You're going to write that I'm like a delusional loser. Yes. Who loves John and he's not that into me, bro. But I'm telling you, you don't know what you're talking about. Yep. And maybe there's a part of it that's that's like, and sometimes, you know, I, I did yes, worry. For sure. Because it was real convincing. John was very convincing. Yes. It was reassuring. But it wasn't like, oh, he loved me? I had no idea. No, it was confirmation. It's it's a pretty big statement because he's saying it's possible that I was closer to him than Yoko ever was. Exactly. I think it's huge. And he says, it's contentious and we know where the contention would be coming from. <laughs> he probably is just being honest, like, you know, maybe or maybe not, but yeah. maybe. Yeah. John liked me a lot, people. Y'all well, don't know that half of any of this stuff john's life story is becoming its own thing at this point it is becoming like its own product as we'll see going into 1988 with that imagine film the new john lennon story that jan wenner and yoko are sort of colluding to create and promote is that the beatles were just like a blip in John's story. And I always like to reiterate that Paul has every reason to be insecure about that. He has no reason to think that this is not going to become 
the accepted story. Well, that's true because this is only 20 years after the Beatles. Right. We exactly. don't, he doesn't know that the, the Beatles are going to have number one albums 50 years after they broke up. Or that the internet is going to be invented so people can go and <laughs> right. look up yeah. old interviews and that they're going to be sprawling documentaries about the Beatles. He doesn't know any of that. Yoko and Wenner might have been successful in this campaign to paper over the Beatles with a solo John. Well, they were until the, until after yeah. the turn of the century. And part of it is because of him pushing back. Yes. Like that if it was George is checked out and emotionally damaged enough from the experience that he's not taking that task upon himself to, you know, preserve the Beatles. He's can barely contribute and Ringo's not going to do it. So it is Paul, like Paul is the keeper of the Beatles flame. And everybody knows that even Paul's detractors know that. Yeah. And will admit it. Of course, they like to repurpose it as an insult on him for some fucking reason. <laughs> like, right. as if you guys aren't Beatles fanatics. I know. It's absurd. Discover John, a motion picture portrait of the angry youth, the musician, the radical, the husband, the father, the lover, the idealist, through his own words and personal collection of film and music. Imagine John Lennon. I remember seeing that movie when I was a young Beatles fan. It was like one of the first documentaries that I saw. And, you know, there's a short bit in the beginning about the Beatles that's over quickly. And then John's denouncing them. And he's calling Paul a cunt and singing How Do You Sleep, yelling at Gloria Emerson. <laughs> Which I he guess they thought was a good look for him. Like between the Gloria Emerson thing and Colin Paula Cunt, I'm like, why do I like him again? I, right. Like I, I really right. like lost focus of, of what I liked about him. Yeah. I had a question about that. The, yes, please. The how do you sleep, you cunt? Is that in the official movie? I thought that was an outtake. No, girl. That's in the <gasps> movie. You are kidding me. That I That is in the theaters. You have got to be kidding me. I am absolutely not. They decided that that Why? needs to be in the final cut of the Why? theatrical film. Thank you. Why? Why? That is pure spite. Yes. There's what? absolutely no justification for that whatsoever. None. None. Jesus Christ. And there was no contextualizing it either. <laughs> sorry if this sounds melodramatic or whatever but i really i don't think younger fans appreciate how bad it was wow i always thought that was an outtake no ma'am she's fucking with him it's the only reason to put that in to fuck with him personally but also to damage his reputation they're really leading into the martyr mythology at this point. The Beatles are absolutely presented as John's band, which really wasn't that great in hindsight, <laughs> which John quickly outgrows. <laughs> They're more like a stepping stone on the path to his writing Imagine, which is presented as like the apex of his life and right. career. I mean, that is the John Lennon mythology in the 80s, 100%. The John Lennon media was intense at that time. 
albums and reissues and bootlegs and men love avenue and madison square garden concert that was released as a video and a album and the mm -hmm. lost lennon tapes came on the radio and every other fucking rolling stone magazine <laughs> john lennon on the cover mm -hmm. like it was really it was really intense and they started putting john's little line drawings on all kinds of products you know, watches and notebooks and uh, coffee mugs, just tons of like Lennon brand trinkets. Yoko got a lot of criticism for that, actually. Enormous criticism. She stopped doing it. But I think it's safe to say that John from that point forward becomes the guy who wrote Imagine. To which Yoko now, thankfully, owns the royalties. The word imagine is attached to pretty much every John Lennon product for the rest of time. And Paul was considered a footnote. Someone John never thought about after imagine. He was like a distant memory. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that imagine movie, we have an account from the film's director, Andrew Solt, who describes his experience of screening the film for Paul McCartney. Salt sat beside McCartney at a special screening of Imagine. Paul not only hummed and sang along to all the Beatles songs, he knew all the Lennon solo material. It was really interesting how and jealous guy he was singing right along. Hmm, jealous guy, interesting. However, McCartney was quiet during How Do You Sleep? He perked up, however, when the film recounted a pep talk Lennon used to give the guys during their frustrating pre-stardom days. He'd say, where are we going, boys? Then they'd reply, to the toppermost of the poppermost, Johnny. When that came on screen, Paul echoed the same words. It was just a chilling moment, Solt said. Whatever people say about the ups and downs, these guys were brothers. They were very close for many years. Mm. Mm -hmm. I okay. cannot believe that Paul had to watch that surrounded by strangers I just cannot what year is this again 88 yeah okay I mean it's a special screening so I'm assuming it was a private screening but still like first of all the shock of even knowing that that happened okay mm -hmm. then it's the shock of actually seeing it happen mm-hmm and then there is the shock of knowing that everybody else who watches this movie is going to watch it happen also. Yeah. And that the keepers of John's flame thought that this was important to include, which 100% suggests that this wasn't a casual toss off thing that John just said one time when he was mad. If you include it in the tribute film to someone's life, you're saying that this guy is a cunt. Yes. Well, and there was no content. It wasn't like they had just told this great story about these best friends who had, you know, risen to the peaks of stardom together. And then they sadly had a falling out. And then they had this, this fight that went out of control, but then they made up again. Like there's no, there's none of that. It's no. just. No yeah. wonder people thought John yeah. and Paul were never friends. Yes. I've always been like, how did that happen? But it makes sense. Uh, yes. Paul, no wonder he was a batshit crazy man. That's aggressive. That is aggressive. 
But you know what? Okay. There were, I'm sure there were a lot of people who loved it. Oh, no doubt. Between that and Gloria Emerson, this New York Times war correspondent, by the way, yeah. who has been in Vietnam, risking her life. Yeah. So that she could go and interview a fucking rock star who could call her bourgeois. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love John, but he is a ridiculous person. And when we take him seriously, yes. we yes. do him a disservice. If they had shown that and they were been they have been like, listen, John had good intentions, yeah. but he was a rookie, you know, like he didn't really know what he was doing and he sometimes lost his temper and he made mistakes. You know what? Yeah. It, that would be fine. Everybody would take that as it was, you know? Right. And they'd be right. like, okay, fine. Growing pains. Wow. He could be a dick, but he meant well and whatever, whatever. But they, it's not presented that way. It's presented like he's speaking truth to power. God. I'm like, you have no fucking clue what that even means. This is mm. like one of the only <laughs> female war correspondents, yeah. period. You clearly don't care about the, the advancements the of, issue. of women or anything. You don't care right. about any of this. Right. Like it or not, you're you're a very influential, powerful person. One of the most influential people in Britain due to your wealth and fame. By no measure are you less powerful than Gloria Emerson right oh no like, by all measures you are far more powerful yes no she's the one speaking truth to power <laughs> that's right yeah because that movie frames john as the hero at every moment these are all the obstacles in his path right like liberal uh columnists from the new york times are the people keeping him down and paul mccartney right like these are the obstacles you need to get through <laughs> so i can't even imagine how hollowed out and just fucking used and abused and empty that would make paul mccartney feel it would it really would We're going to quote again from Philip Norman's Paul bio. In January 1988, the Beatles were to be inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in only the third such ceremony ever held. Paul had accepted the invitation at the event at New York's Waldorf Astoria Hotel and had rounded up George and Ringo to appear alongside him. But it had since emerged that under his new capital EMI contract, he would receive an extra 1% from Beatles backlist sales as a result he was being sued jointly by the two of them and yoko his response was to issue a statement that he'd be boycotting the rock and roll hall of fame investiture quote after 20 years the beatles and i still have some business differences which i had hoped would be settled by now unfortunately they haven't been so i would feel like a complete hypocrite waving and smiling with them at a fake reunion quote wow Paul, take it down a notch. I know. <laughs> yeah. A little over the top. Okay. Yeah. The, in the induction ceremony was performed by Mick Jagger and watched by most of the great names from the Anglo-American rock fraternity. Thank you for that, Philip Norman. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's 
Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Who had the Beatles to thank for their careers? Ouch, that's true too. George, Ringo, and Yoko were joined on stage by John's two sons, 25-year-old Julian, now a recording artist, engineered to sound uncannily like his father, and 13-year-old Sean. Thank you very much. After a few woozy words from Ringo, uh, I, I don't know what that means. Was he drunk? Drunk, Beatles. yeah. George made a formal acceptance speech, giving no hint of the litigation hovering in the background. It's, uh, it's unfortunate Paul's not here because he was the one who had the speech in his pocket. Uh-huh. That's a joke. <laughs> we all know why John can't be here, and I'm sure he would be, and it's hard really to stand here supposedly representing the Beatles. Uh, it's what's left, I'm afraid. But um, we all loved him so much, and we all love Paul very much. Still, the feeling of an angel-faced elephant in the room was inescapable. <laughs> He's something else, Norman. Okay. George thanked the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by quoting the Paul song that had kicked off Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It's wonderful to be here. It's certainly a thrill. And the silver-clad Yoko, who spoke next, didn't bother with diplomacy. I wish John was here. He would have been here, you know. He would have come. Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 the drama. The drama, I know. The shade. And the evening really? ended. You're Can so you sure John would have come. <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm not. I thought of a bit I'm not either. <laughs> I mean, maybe. But there's always a blessing in life. The thing I don't understand about the, about the extra 1% is I thought Capital offered Paul that deal in like the 70s. I think they did. I think he had been earning 1% all that time. Why did they wait until 1988 to sue him? They didn't know. Oh, okay. So they just found out and then they were like, hey. Yeah. We want that I think money. So. Guess, Although, yeah. wouldn't they be suing capital? Well, whatever. I guess there's no breach of contract. Are they arguing that it was a handshake agreement? I think so. I think that's the argument. That it had always been, you know, no one would earn any more than anyone else. That was yeah. the understanding. Well, it has to be because otherwise you would think that the attorneys at Capitol or whoever was doing this record deal, like it's their job to go over and look at the Beatles old contracts and go, oh, wait, there's a clause here that says, mm. we can't, oh, then they'd go back. They, we can't offer him the 1% because it, he has a clause that says all four Beatles have to get, you know, equal. Uh-huh. Like yeah. That's somebody else's job. I mean, yeah. usually I the artist know. has very little to do with that. It's so hard when so much of your promises were made in good faith and love. That's why divorce really is the best word. But having said that, if they did agree to always keep everything at 25% apiece, then I guess they are entitled to that money. Or at at least they're entitled to try to get it. Well, but the 1% is being taken out of Capital's Beatles earnings. Oh, yeah, Capital oh, okay. was like, here, you can have one per you can have one percent of our of what we make off the Beatles. Oh in exchange. Well then what exchange. the fuck? Who cares? That's none of their business. Well Yeah. I mean oh, I have a I lot they... less sympathy for it now. 
I think they yeah. won in court. I mean, it depends how you how you put it. It's like, you know, that's just petty, though. That's it, it. Kind of is. If it's not taking money out of their pockets, then it's just like I would rather the fucking record company have the money than you. That's bullshit. Mm. It's not something you ever had any expectation of getting. Exactly. I'd be like, that's none of your business. I mean, that's that's where I lean toward as well although if i recall correctly i think they did win that case so they were able to make the case that that was in violation of their handshake no one will ever make more than the others you know regardless of the source and then there's also the added like (laughs) yeah i guess paul's managers are are better than yours Hmm. well and also capital values him more than they value you. well exactly i don't of course i don't know but the reason he got that is because he's made a lot his solo career is making a lot more money for capital yeah that's bullshit but yeah Yeah. you're right i can see how whatever listen i think it's petty of them to bring that suit but it's also probably fair that they win right the main takeaway is just to acknowledge that they're in this battle so it is part of what's right. going on between yeah. them. yeah both sides think the other side is being petty and greedy <laughs> wherever we stand on it doesn't really matter exactly nobody needs to have an opinion on this. this this is just what's going on so on the one hand paul's throwing a bit of a tantrum here <laughs> or a wobbly as the brits would say that's right <laughs> He could have just shown up and said, thank you. He really could have. He really, and it it would have been in his best interest to do so, to be honest. If he could have done that. Having said that, like, I do think that anybody should be able to opt out of something like that for their own mental health. And they shouldn't get blowback for it. If he was like, I am just not up to it. Fair enough. Yeah. Plus, you got to admit, it is kind of rock and roll to be like, (laughs) fuck your stupid award. Rock and roll Hall of Fame. Eat my ass. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah. Although he doesn't exactly say that because he goes back. Well, he definitely does not say that. I wish he did. It would be cooler. Also in 1988, uh, the year that keeps on giving, Albert Goldman published The Lives of John Lennon, and it rocked the celebrity gossip world for a while, uh, to say the least. Heroin usage, cruelty, violence, and homosexuality were the main accusations against John, as well as schizophrenia and autism. So regardless of the veracity of any of these claims, obviously there is nothing wrong with being autistic queer and or schizophrenic and being addicted to drugs is also not a moral failing but 1988 was a different time yeah let's put it that way it's a different time this was treated as john being john's memory being spat upon well it was definitely the intent of it was a hundred percent to knock him off his pedestal yes Mm -hmm. i mean that was albert goldman's stated mission yeah and as much as we do complain about the pedestal that john was on and don't feel that that was accurate or necessary or helpful in any way Mm -hmm. neither was this book (laughs) 
Well, certainly not. No. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Yoko went into hardcore damage control mode after the Goldman book, and Paul was happy to pitch in to publicly defend John. And apparently Yoko really appreciated that, thought of it as Paul, you know, doing her a real solid. In fact, uh, Norman writes in his Paul bio, how many times are we going to say that this episode, that Paul's help with that Goldman era damage control is what later convinces Yoko to help on Anthology. His music is as timeless and relevant today as it was a generation ago. He revolutionized our music and our culture. This man was John Lennon. Two years later, in May of 1990, uh, on what would be John's 50th birthday, Yoko organized a tribute concert to John in Liverpool. There was a big roster of, you know, fairly big name performers. Elton John, David Bowie, Lou Reed, Al Green, Randy Travis, Terrence Trent Darby, Billy Joel, Kylie Minogue, Ray Charles, Natalie Cole, Cindy Lauper, Joe Cocker, and Wet, Wet, Wet. Uh, some, some obvious choices, some not so obvious choices. Yeah. Uh, Paul and Ringo were not there, but they sent in videos. Um, an article I found from the Liverpool Echo said the concert was hosted by Superman actor Christopher Reeve. Although oddly, naturally, <laughs> there's a YouTube video of this entire concert, and it is very definitely hosted by Michael Douglas. Oh no way! <laughs> yes, and not not Christopher Reeve, but whatever. Huh. Yeah, maybe they just got confused. Wow. Anyway, the <laughs> Liverpool Echo okay. says <laughs> it was reported that Ono had limited support from the three remaining Beatles, although Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr sent video messages which were shown on big screens at the event but no message by george harrison appeared at the show in october paul did an interview with mtv to promote his own concert tour movie and between the takes he talked about this tribute to kurt loader do you think john would go for this sort of thing or do you think it was a nice gesture or... well you know i think yeah gesture and all of that i think that's fine you know um the show she did from Liverpool, my feeling about it was that John wouldn't have enjoyed it. No. I think a number of people on the bill he would have enjoyed. I mean, I don't want to go down the bill and say who no, he would have no. <laughs> Who did he really hate? But yeah, now I know what I you mean. I think there were one or two on that bill that he might have not. <laughs> yeah. He might have thrown up over. Um, you know, because it was not John. It was not in no. any way John. It was nothing to do with what he was to do with. But it was a tribute, and John was a great guy, and... You know, he would have been 50 this year. Yeah, yeah. I can't believe that, but it's true. <laughs> it's incredible. But, um, so, you know, as far as all that was concerned, that, that was good really to do. But um, I hate to say, I think some of those things can ruin his reputation rather than enhance mm -hmm. it. And I mean, I'm not just talking for me now. I've, I, yeah. This isn't just a personal... Well, to see, it's like seeing him people. sort of wheeled out as a symbol and sort of used to say, we're going to create this. I know, it's, it seems it's like he's thing, exploitation. Man. I got a letter recently sort of inviting me to this United Nations thing. And it, it was written to me, and it was like, come and hear, you know, this is a tribute to John Lennon. And it's like, I know who you're talking about if you say John. <laughs> right. I kind of, you know, I'm personal. Right? <laughs> but, you know, I get the same sort of form yeah. letter that everyone gets, and it's a little bit, yeah. you know, it's a little bit of a piss off occasionally. Yeah, so this concert, um, like I said, it is on YouTube. We'll put it in the show notes if you're curious, if you want to watch it. 
Um, Paul was in no way treated as a person of honor at this concert. He was sixth in the lineup behind Wet, Wet, Wet and Terrence Trent Darby. Who? Uh, yeah. It's a bit odd. It's a bit insulting, actually. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, He's kind of being treated like another showbiz friend rather yeah. than co-author of 18 of the 25 songs performed at the John Lennon tribute. It's just insulting that he was behind Wet, Wet, Wet. It's incredibly insulting. That's why it's... Now, bear in mind, he's not there. Even still, you would hold him to the very the end. end. And you would you say, would. joining us via satellite or fucking whatever, you know? Yeah. Mr. Paul McCartney, John Lennon's best friend and songwriting partner. Can't, couldn't be here tonight, but he has sent a videotape and we love him. Etc. Yeah, exactly. Nope, none of that. Yeah, so between the Imagine movie this memorial concert all the books paul may have been feeling he's getting pushed out of john's life for good well and then he gets a form letter from the united nations yeah i don't blame him for not going i don't blame him for being like whatever i mean more than anything it oh would, yeah it, it would drive yeah. home to him how much the public understanding yep. of their of their relationship and their songwriting partnership yeah. has deteriorated in the public. Right. This is the new narrative, Paul. And again, the the people of this time don't have YouTube videos yeah. that show John and Paul in their at the height of their closeness. They don't they have no idea. Right? They have no idea. They don't have access to um, newspaper articles from the 60s so it is very reasonable for Paul to have been afraid that this is this is what's going to go down this I'm going to be written out of this man's life yeah and that's how we're going to be remembered he's going to be remembered as the cool guy who calls me a cunt yes yeah, so it's real, it happened, and Paul had every right to be very upset about it at the time. And to be, frankly, and to still be, like, reeling. That's yeah. traumatizing. I'm so fascinated and horrified by this idea of of be, of living, like, in real time, watching your entire public persona crumble yes mm -hmm. that's wild style what does that do to a person's psychology i don't know because there are no studies that's an that's another thing i and i have to, you know I, i'm as guilty as anyone i have to remind myself of this like we don't know what super fame does to the human psyche right we don't know we have no idea we have no idea what these people are going through yeah and paul made that observation in like 1979 he's like it's really interesting and he's like somebody should study it but the thing is mm. that everybody mm. who's this famous doesn't want to talk about it and and i also wish that he now that he would relax and ease up on some of these talking points but on the other hand i can't blame him for not having a great perspective on his situation right 
and not wanting to let your guard down and not you know mm -hmm. uh, and i can see trying to keep a tight a tight hold of everything because it got so out of control yeah yeah Finally, we have a sound clip of Yoko from a BBC radio interview in 1990. I think that it's like he was married to Paul, and now he was married to me. So it was like a situation that he didn't feel like he wanted to go back, really. John had a lot of respect for Paul and, of course, love. But I would think that if the truth may be told, the love was lost on both ways. There were times that Paul did say a lot of strange things about John. So that I, I know that it wasn't like Paul loved John, but John didn't love Paul, or John actually loved Paul, but Paul, you know, didn't. I mean, it was like a very healthy situation where they outgrew each other's company. And only until John became what he is now, which is after John's death, that people started to rever John it became an issue for Paul. Because you have to understand that table was turned many times. One, when John made the Jesus Christ remark and Paul became a virtually a leader. And John turned the table on Paul by becoming a partner with me, probably. But then the thing is, the table was turned again by Paul becoming extremely successful with the wings. So he was doing all right, while John made some time in New York City with me and then followed that with mind games or something, you know. So when John died around that time, before the big reverence was noticed, I think there was uh, some uh, things that Paul said that I know that Paul was not that sort of enamored with John. And now uh, it might be important for Paul that uh, the world knows that John loved him. Well, you know, I mean, that's because of what happened to John after John's death, that there was a reverence all over the world. And therefore, it is important to be known that that person who is revered did actually love me, you know. But if John died and nobody cared, and John died as a person whose last album was number 20 in the charts or something like that, Paul would not have said that. It's a lost issue then. And I think that you're romanticizing it too much. I mean, this is just human situation, you know? There is so, so much here. Paul said a lot of strange things about John after John died. So is she talking, she's she got to be talking about the Hunter Davies conversation, right? That's I, what comes to my mind. I think she's talking about Hunter Davies, yeah, because she said when John died. So in addition to... The things that we discussed, Paul called John a maneuvering swine. <laughs> he said he got <laughs> crazy with jealousy. He said that he was honest, but he really wasn't that honest. Yeah, and, and Paul complained that John was being made into Martin Luther Lennon. That phone conversation was printed in the 1985 reissue of Hunter's book. So Yoko would have had time to read them. Oh, I, I totally understand her her perspective here she's like hey that's my dearly beloved murdered husband you're talking about there you know she might not give paul the benefit of the doubt i think paul deserves the benefit of the doubt but i can understand if she's like uh-huh i see 
Well, it's, I mean, no doubt he has some resentments. He got in a lot of hot water about calling John a maneuvering swine, but like that's literally a paraphrase of what John called himself. Yeah. It's not, that's certainly not the worst thing John was. Paul could have called him out a lot harder, in fact. And and he even says that. He even says that. He's like, I could go for the throat. What about this quote? It was a very healthy situation. (laughs) (laughs) It's opposite day in Yoko land today. (laughs) That's certainly the last thing I would call their breakup. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's, she's trying to overwrite reality. You know, she's trying to write a new narrative that she feels would serve her and John's interests best. Fair. But it is very untrue, and she knows it's untrue. But it's not like it's a malicious untruth. You know, she's she's sugarcoating rather than... Mm-hmm. I agree with that, too. Uh, naturally outgrew each other. That will become a recurring party line that they all right. tow at, at mm-hmm. one time or another. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's just a different way of saying wedding bells, really. I mean, it does have elements of truth to it, so it's not total bullshit, and it does make sense. And it is the easiest way to make sense of this to normal people, right? (laughs) That's true. But if you're you're filling journals with vitriol about someone, you didn't naturally outgrow them. Oh, there's there's nothing, there's nothing healthy about it. I mean, right, right. The table was turned many times. So here, I think... She's trying to say that John and Paul both had ups and downs in terms of popularity Mm. because she uses wings and like, you know, Paul's success with wings and stuff. Although some of her examples are, don't really fit that. They seem to indicate power rather than popularity. So. Well, and she also attributes Paul becoming a leader directly to John's, the bigger than jesus controversy which is yeah. odd well I, I, odd. I mean i think you could just say that he stepped up at a time when he was you know he when he needed to take charge and he did he stepped up and i mean i don't i think that's neutral personally i don't think that that's a diss or whatever oh well, yeah yeah but it makes it seem like paul becoming a leader a virtually a leader was just because john slipped up it's not because paul had already been the musical leader in the studio for a long time you know maybe what I mean? maybe but i don't want to bring my own baggage into that mm. I, I mean okay look, that's honestly fair. looking at it it seems kind of neutral to me i think she's saying paul became a leader um when he was required to step up there but she can't she can't bring herself to say the title leader because that's contentious ah, right so oh, she okay. so she has to say virtually a leader because you're not going to get me saying that Paul was the leader of the Beatles okay my mm-hmm. job is to say John was the leader of the band yeah so he was virtually leader <laughs> but anyways i think the point of these examples i think what she's maybe saying is upper hand it's not exactly popularity it's not exactly power, but it's kind of upper hand. I think what she's saying is John is currently very revered, but but he will eventually go out of style and Paul will be back on top in due time. Huh. And she's kind she's kind of right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it depends it depends on what measures you're using. Of course. 
because she says John partnering with me is that giving him more power? Is it giving him more popularity? Not really, but well, is it, it giving? But it, it throws Paul off balance. Correct. So it's giving him upper hand on a personal yeah. manipulative level, right? right, right <laughs> but it doesn't really yeah. offer. It doesn't really provide anything else. Yeah, so, well, that's true. And with wings, Paul is outselling John for sure. But is he? Does yeah. he have the the cool points? You know, in mm. the media, not really. Right. So it just kind of hmm. depends on what your measure is. Yeah, I just don't, I don't like the way that she put it, that they turned the tables on each other. Paul isn't doing anything to John by stepping up when John says something controversial. Do you know what I mean? Uh, well, or having success with wings. <laughs> and also, I love that she's using her own relationship with John and saying that, that that was John one-upping Paul. Like, what are you saying? What are you saying about your feelings for each other? And the what motivation. What are you saying about John's motivations here with getting together right. with you? She's, I mean, she's speaking some truth there. That's for sure. Yeah, she, I don't yeah. know if she is on purpose. Outing, but, outing, yeah. outing herself there. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, having said that, like, yeah, there were there were power struggles between Paul and John. That's we can't pretend that's not true. Yeah, but her point about Paul only wanting people to know John loved him because John is currently highly revered. I take her point. I think that that is true. Yes. Yeah, I don't think Paul would ever talk about any of this if he didn't have to. I think I think he'd prefer to keep it all private. Right. But he can't. Like, I, I don't think she's wrong in saying that. I just think she's wrong in interpreting Paul's motives for that. Explain that. What do you think Well, she's saying his motives are? That it's purely self-interested and that it's purely for, like, street cred reputation. Whereas I think it's much more emotional for Paul. Because, mm. <sighs> I mean, put yourself in his place. Your best friend one of the people you've loved most in your life, your soulmate, they die. And then everyone starts talking about how much they didn't like you. That's a record that needs to be corrected. That is painful. And it's kind of a weird sort of unnatural situation. I mean, I guess I could see. Well, very much so because there is all this attendant, weird professional and artistic and cultural relevance like tied up in that because if john lennon thinks you're cool then you're cool so i'm sure that's part of it but mainly i think it's like john and paul loved each other how dare anyone say yeah. to paul that john didn't love him that's just extremely hurtful right no i agree it is hurtful and it's also insulting yeah but to her point though like and to to your point there definitely is social cachet and respect that comes with being you know the object of john lennon's adoration right right so if it's both of those things at the same time it's kind of impossible to determine how much of which it is right like what is the That's true That's recipe true. of whatever does it make paul's stock go up Right. It, it it does make his stock go down if mm -hmm. 
John hates him and right. thinks he's lame. So to the extent that Paul's like, I need reparations for the damages caused to my reputation, professional yes. and celebrity wise or whatever. Yes. That is true, but it's not in a vacuum. And she right. knows it too. She knows that they loved each other, whatever. But I mean, even in that quote, she she's like, listen, I'm not saying that they didn't love each other or that, you know, it was one-sided on anybody's part, but they also sort of fell out of love with each other equally as well. Yeah. Well, and, you know, also with Adash, always I think of, I'm not letting Paul have the last word on this. Here's my two cents. Well, and also you know she's got to be like look enough about them i was the wife when he died so let's talk about us mm. they broke up a okay. long time ago can we stop talking about them <laughs> <sighs> i don't know what she means by you romanticizing it too much it's just a human situation <laughs> um I, I wish I knew what preceded this clip. Unfortunately, this is all we have. Uh, so I don't know the context, but then again, it's Yoko. So maybe it wouldn't matter. Um, <laughs> my guess though, is that she's saying it's not some great mystical thing. It's just two people who loved each other and broke up big deal, which is ironic coming from the person who rewrote her love story with John and has been using her marriage mm. to sell products for the past 20 years. But uh, maybe that's a little bit of passive aggressive shade for Paul pushing back on the John and Yoko origin story. It is interesting that Paul really does sort of focus on them loving each other after mm -hmm. John dies. Like he doesn't even go in hard on you know, I did this with the tape loops and what about blah, 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 and et cetera. Mm -hmm. You know, his little bugaboos that he has pushed back on for the past 20, 30 years, right? Right. His list of grievances, you know? Like, yeah, like many years from now is kind of, I think yes. he hit, he hit his limit and he was like, I guess yes. it has to be me then. But up until then, he's mostly just talking about like, yeah, the relationship the relationship yeah i mean mm -hmm. and maybe that's just a byproduct of his grief he's just i think so he's just missing the man that he loved more than he's worried about his his artistic legacy or whatever mm -hmm. and whatever worries he has about those things i think he's trying to trust those will get sorted out without any intervention from him yes yes so Yoko is making kind of an interesting observation here. Yeah. Yeah. She is highlighting what I see as a shift in what Paul prioritizes communicating about his relationship with John. Right. The after John died, Paul was preoccupied with making people aware that John loved him and not right. so much vice versa. Although, in fairness to paul that was mostly in response to negative things john said and did towards him oh well definitely it's very understandable that that was his focus at first he wanted to convince other people of that and probably you know needed if not to convince himself at least to reassure himself you know that yes despite 
all of these things. Thank you, everyone, for talking about them all the time. <laughs> I know <laughs> that John knows, that Yoko knows, that I know, <laughs> that George and Ringo know, <laughs> that John loved me. And you can't take that away. And also, he might be, you know, he might just be thinking, well, and obviously I loved him. Right. I mean, clearly. Well, and in fairness to him, he's like, I wrote a song and I said it, okay? It's on the record. Mm -hmm. Don't ever make me say that ever again. (laughs) (laughs) You want to know how I feel? Play here today. Leave me alone. Yeah, so he's reacting against the public perception that John was mad at Paul or disliked him, not vice versa. Yeah. Although he did have to do a little damage control after it's a drag. I remember always having the impression like, boy, that Paul McCartney sure does love that John Lennon so much. You know, like it wasn't ever really, I never really questioned it, but lots of people think that Paul has no human emotions and that he doesn't love anyone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, we can't go back in time to kind of like trace how that became the thing. We can just kind of guess. But I think we start to see, moving forward, starting around this time, a shift in the way Paul talks about John and the way he begins to shift the conversation toward his love for John. I think he has always struggled with that. He said as much. Uh, you can hear it in his song here today. But I think starting now he wants to focus on putting his love for john out there putting it into the universe for all to see thank you for listening to the first installment of strange bedfellows big thank you to the paul mccartney project website as well as all our friends on social media for posting interviews and articles Preserving source material is the Lord's work. Thank you very much, guys. Amen. Join us next time in episode two. We have a magnificent guest. Very exciting. Somebody who can offer unique insight into the Paul and Yoko universe. And let me tell you, he does not hold back. (laughs) Not at all. He delivers the goods for sure. (laughs) It's a must hear. Must hear. Very candid interview. Don't miss it. go Daphne oh thank you Phoebe Mm. (laughs) this podcasting is thirsty work you know I usually prefer (laughs) a cup of good old American Joe but sometimes nothing hits the spot like a pot of hot strong tea Mm, I couldn't agree more Mm. (laughs) Mm, delicious would you care for some sugar oh please Phoebe, no, not with your fingers. They'll get sticky. (laughs) Use a spoon. Good lord, can't take you anywhere. You're absolutely right. We don't want sticky fingers. (laughs) If you're a fan of ACOM, please write your congressman. If you would like to join the ACOM revolution for better government... (laughs) (laughs) write to us (laughs) write to us at phoebelordforpresident.com 
<laughs> we will tie your name and address to a balloon and let it go. <laughs> We're going to change the world. <laughs> One beetle fan at a time. Hearts and minds, people. <laughs> <laughs>